Who do you work for, really? Each one of us has a calling. Have you heard this before? Your workplace is your mission field, wherever that may be. You either work for him or work against him, but you work for someone. Who do you really work for? Is it your clients, your boss, your family, yourself, or your Lord? This isn't a trick question. There is a right answer. You're either all in or all out. Are you for him? I am. In fact, I work for him. Hey, Jim, who do you work for? I work for him. I work for Jesus Christ. I want to be your let me introduce you to the host of the I Work For Him show, Jim Brangenberg. Welcome, welcome, welcome. You've tuned into the I Work For Him radio show with your host, Jim Brangenberg. Take a minute and listen. I Work For Him, is, it's not a program that you sign up for. It's a mentality. It's a way of living. It's a permanent shift in your Christ-following paradigm. It's a revolution that's happening in the workplace, and it's about bringing the kingdom of God into places where the kingdom is ignored. Keep in mind that your existence in your workplace, it's not by chance. It doesn't matter what you do or where you do it. Whether you're a pastor, a car mechanic, an attorney, a teacher, a mom, a used car salesperson, your work, it matters to God. And he expects you to be his representative in your workplace. And in your workplace, to recognize that that's your mission field. And in that mission field, you may be the only Jesus your coworkers and employees may ever meet. Now, I know you've heard me say this tons and tons of times, but every day we need to be reminded that going to work is not just to draw paychecks so we can buy groceries. Going to work every day is an opportunity to be a light for Christ. Each day on the I Work For Him show, we try to bring you the practical, the tactical, the factual, and the biblical ways to incorporate your faith into your workplace. I don't come to you as an expert. I don't come to you as somebody that's got this all figured out. I'm just one guy trying to live my life transparently so that you can maybe gain something in order to be an effective witness for Christ in your workplace. Our paradigm shift is described like this. Romans 12.2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Welcome to the I Work Ram Zone. I hope you're never the same. You know, today we're going to be talking about really the, the biblical perspective on income inequality. You hear about it in the news each and every day a ton. Income inequality. It's not fair. Income inequality. We've got to fix it. We've got to level the playing field. We've got an expert joining us today from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. We've got Dr. Ann Bradley. She is a repeat guest on I Work For Him. So grateful to have you back here today, Dr. Ann Bradley. Hi, Jim. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. It, it is so, it's always so much fun. I have had so many comments when I've had you on the air with me, like, wow, she's fantastic. you got to bring her back on. I'm like, okay, all right, we'll do that again. All right, so... The Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics, before we get into our conversation today, can you just give us a little brief, what's the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics all about? Absolutely. We are an organization based in McLean, Virginia, and I think the best way to typify what we do is we really want to um, educate Christians on what the gospel has to say about who they are, what they're here for, and and how they make individual contributions to flourishing, and that we can do that in our own little way, in the unique way that God has made us. Uh, we think that that message is exciting and liberating, uh, because it really kind of gets into the idea that whether you're a stay-at-home mom raising kids or a CEO of a hedge fund or a janitor, if God's called you to it, you're supposed to do it with integrity, and in doing that, you serve other people and make the world a better 
workplace, and that's exciting. It is exciting, and that's part of what we're trying to do here, and I work for him on the radio, is just encourage people that it doesn't matter what they do. What they do matters. How they do it matters. You know, they don't have to wear a big red Jesus button on their forehead in order for people to know that they're a Christ follower. All they need to do is do their job with excellence, and all of a sudden people are going to look at that and go, why? You know, it's that same argument. If, if, you're, if you're a member of a union and you're working too hard, they're going to look at you and go, hey, you're making the rest of us look bad. And you just say, wait a minute, but I'm just doing a good job. That's what the Lord expects us. He expects us to do a good job all the time. And, and it's exciting. The, the, you mentioned flourishing. You want to help people flourish where they are and understand flourishing. What does that really mean? Well, that's a big question, one I'm willing <laughs> to, to take a stab at. No, it's a good question, because I think, really, if you go to Genesis, this is what it's all about. Um, God created the earth and everything in it, and in doing that, he gave us a job, and uh, our job was to work the garden and to take care of it, and those are, are different things. Um, take care kind of means preserve, and so there's some of that that we have to do, but we have to cultivate it, and how do we do that? We cultivate it using our gifts and our talents that are uniquely ours. Uh, and that means that um, we are to unleash our creativity that, that God gave us on his creation. And when we do it, we create something better than, than what was there before. And so the theologians that I work with say, God is the only one who can create something out of nothing. Mm-hmm. But we're sub-creators. We're to create something out of something. And these things have eternal significance. So we're marching into the new heaven and the new earth. And uh, right now, we have a job to do that will have lasting eternal significance. And I don't think that many of us, when we wake up in the morning and we're brushing our teeth and we're getting in the car and there's traffic, we don't always think about it that way. We think we're going to our job because we have to pay the bills, because we need, you know, medical care and a roof over our head. And yes, our job can give us those things, but it does so much more than that, which is it can fulfill us, it can fulfill God's goals for us and for his creation. And when you think about it that way, wow, isn't that amazing? It's exciting. I just love the way you say it, and you keep bringing up all these farming terms, and I want to get into this conversation on agriculture. You said flourishing and cultivation. I'm thinking, wow, if people mm-hmm. just if people had my Midwestern upbringing, they'd understand those words, I think, a lot better. And nothing a little mm-hmm. fertilizer can't fix. And really, that's right. what we're trying to do on the air today, give a little fertilizer into the conversation. All right, before we go to our break, Ann, how is Christ making an impact on your life today? Well, I, you know, I'm, I have a lot of hats that I wear, as I think many people do. I'm an economist, um, so I write things, and I talk about ideas, and I teach classes, and, uh, you know, I have two sweet little babies, and I'm a wife, and so I think that how I live that out every day sometimes feels hard, and, I, you know, you don't know um, how the trade-offs are going to come down, but I feel that if I can just wake up in the morning and say, God, what do you want for me today, and help me listen to that and live into it, then taking one day at a time is the best we can do, for, right. for me at least. That's fantastic. I love that, and that's it, just taking one day at a time. All right, we're talking today with Dr. Ann Bradley. She's with the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. You can find them online at T-I-F-W-E. And on their website, it is packed full of all kinds of incredible information on the biblical perspective on, really, faith, work, and economics. That seems pretty simple. That's what their website's all about. Dr. Ann Bradley, welcome back to I Work For Him. Thank you. 
All right, so I, I, I picked out a verse for our conversation today. As, as we're talking about the biblical perspective on income inequality, and, and because I know where the conversation is going because we've started this conversation before, but from 1 Corinthians 12, uh, 4 through 11, verses 4 through 11, I'm, I, I took some of the pieces out, but God's various gifts are handed out to everyone, but they all originate in God's Spirit. God's various ministries are carried out everywhere but they all originate in God's spirit. God's various expressions of power are in action everywhere, but God himself is behind it all. Each person is given something to do that shows who God is. Everyone gets in on it. Everyone benefits. All kinds of things are handed out by the spirit and to all kinds of people. Really, that's, that, those scriptures really lay out the conversation we're going to have today. The reason there's income inequality is God created people differently. Isn't that true? That's right. That's right. That's absolutely right. I think that scripture is a really powerful place for us to start the conversation because it gets to who we are in Christ and how we were created. Um, and then income, we can kind of have an economic discussion of what it means and how how we get it and what we're supposed to do with it. Um, and those are kind of the questions that I think we need to dive into when we have this political type of conversation about what should Christians think about income inequality? Is it good? Is it bad? If it's bad, what do we do? So there's a lot of nuance that we have to unpack, but I think this passage is a great place to start. Well, and so I want, I'm with you on that. I, I want to start there, but I'm gonna, I want to just throw that hook at you that I promised I was going to throw at you. Okay, in our mm-hmm. society, ev- almost every day on the news, they're saying the solution to income equality is a $15 minimum wage. Is a $15 minimum wage going to solve the income inequality problems here in the United States? Very brief answer is no, it won't. Uh, and I'll tell you why. Uh, well, first, this has been tried in different places, and so Seattle in April was one of the first um, cities to do this. L.A. is talking about it now. New York is talking about it today. So it's a common idea that if we increase the minimum amount um, that employers are allowed to pay their employees, that it would be a way to increase the standard of living. So it's not an unreasonable thought. I think we need to kind of start the conversation empathetically that way. It's not unreasonable. Uh, However, um, what we have to look at is what are the economic effects of doing that? So when you increase the, the, the amount uh, that an employer is legally required to pay, that money has to come from somewhere. Oh, no, it doesn't. And it just has got to come out of his wallet. It's not <laughs> going to impact anything. That's what they keep telling us. Oh, it'll be great. Right, and that's the. I think that's the mistake, is that we think – here's what we tend to think about when we talk about kind of decisions we make in the public square. And by that, I mean kind of these political types of decisions. We tend to think that there's a pot of money from which we pull – endlessly, and that there's no real cost to that. Now, it's true that the pot in the public square is much bigger than our private pot of money, right, because we're pulling it from many, many millions of people. But the money has to come from somewhere else to have a pot from which to pull. And so in our private lives, we're very, very aware of this. In other words, uh, most people aren't going to rack up credit card debt to the extent that they can't pay it because what is going to happen? They're going to lose their homes. They're going to lose their cars. I mean, this is fundamentally bad stewardship because you can't just spend money on your credit card without having an income to back that up or financial resources to back that up. And so the same idea applies 
in kind of political decision-making. So we have to say, from where does the minimum wage come? If we're talking about going from $7 an hour to 15 we're talking about a very large increase, over 100%. Um, economists have done a little bit of research on what has gone on in Seattle as a result of that, and they focus their research on the restaurant industry, which is where a lot of people are making these types of wages. And what they found is that it increased the cost of running a business by 47%. This is... Wow. A large number. That's a big number. So ask anybody. It's a big number. And ask people who own their own businesses, whether you do accounting, you know, work on the side or, um, you know, whatever it is that you might do, if you could withstand overnight a 47% increase in the cost of doing business, well, you can't if there's, you know, that money has to come from somewhere. And so what we see as a result is that some restaurants in Seattle have actually closed. Now, that's a really bad alternative because now fewer jobs and fewer places to eat. So it kind of hurts the people we're trying to help. If we actually have no low-skilled, you know, low, you know, kind of types of jobs, then we're in a worse place than where we started. So the idea here is that we want to get people on the economic ladder of opportunity and then give them, a, you know, kind of an ability to climb up that ladder. Well, and really, I sense that there's probably enough information there where we could have a whole conversation about understanding the economics of a business because people, a lot of times people just think, well, business owners are just rolling in it, and so this should be yeah. an easy conversation. But what, what I read yesterday on the Seattle experiment is that these workers who are now making $15 an hour, they're calling in and saying, hey, I don't want to work as much because I don't want to lose all my other social benefits. And so right. where they were working 28 hours before, now they want to work less because they don't want to stop getting all the other benefits that our government hands out. So it's a really complicated conversation. So I know I took you off track, but I wanted people to hear that because they're hearing it every day that raising a minimum wage is going to solve the problem. I mean, you hear about it in Tampa Bay. It's on the news almost every day. It's going to solve the problem. It's going to solve the problem. And the in fact is that's a lie. It just creates different problems and it raises the cost of everybody. If the wages have to double, the cost of the goods that you're buying are going to increase as well. That's right. And, uh, you know, really what that does, if I can just finish this, you know, kind of if you want to move on, I'm happy to do that. But th on this idea, all we've done when we raise the minimum wages, we've moved resources around. We've moved resources from businesses that were using them for other things into a few people who get to maintain their job at $15 an hour. So, you know, that does not jumpstart economic growth. What jumpstarts economic growth is entrepreneurship and innovation and people being able to say, hey, I have an idea about a new way to do personal computing, or I have a new way of, you know, thinking about telephones, or I have a new way of doing accounting services, and being able to put those ideas to the test. And when we do that, we actually create jobs where there were none. And that is what we're after, is more jobs, more flourishing, uh, increased material well-being to the extent that people know they're going to get three meals a day. They know that when they're sick, they can get medical care. This is what Christians are after when we're thinking about things like the minimum wage. We want people to be able to flourish and to thrive in their gifts. And uh, when, when they're starving and when they can't get medical attention, they can't do that to the extent that the rest of us can. Now, I, I agree, and you say it so well. That's why people go, you got to keep bringing Ann back. She says this stuff so well. Listen, you helped edit and write part of a book called 
for the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty. I want to do our book highlight segment now as we head into our next break. It's brought to you by Karis Christian Books and Gifts. Hey, I've got a copy of this book to give away to you today. For the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty, written by Dr. Ann Bradley and a whole bunch of other contributing editors, and Ann, you helped edit the whole thing. This book really answers a lot of the questions you just stated, you just answered. Isn't that true? There's all kinds of very good information in here. Right, and I think the power of the book is that it's not um, it's not just economists talking about these ideas. What is really important to the mission of our organization is that we start with Scripture first. So we don't want to say, okay, you know, we come from a certain political ideology and read that into Scripture. That's not intellectually honest. And so we say, what does Scripture have to say about how we should care for the poor? And so the first part of the book, which is about five chapters, are written by theologians who are doing the exegetical work, and they're saying, this is what poverty and riches looks like in the Old Testament, and this is what it looks like in the New Testament, and this is how we think about wealth, and all these types of questions. What does it mean to be poor? Is being poor virtuous, and is being rich, you know, um, villainous? Uh, We kind of go line by line through those questions and try to address them, and then we bring an economist to say, How can the economic way of thinking help us understand what the Bible is? We're talking about income inequality and a biblical perspective on that, but we have a book we're giving away that she's participated in writing and edited the whole thing. For the least of these, a biblical answer to poverty. We talked about it right before the break. Didn't get a chance to give you the phone number. If you want to get a copy of this, I have one copy to give away today. Call into the studio line now. Ace is sitting by 877-943-9673. 877-943-9673. All right, Ann, I brought you on under the, under the pretense that we're going to talk about biblical inequality, and I, I sent you sideways on the economics of the minimum wage because I, I was reading articles. I kept reading articles about it, and I thought, I know you could answer the questions way better than I could, so I'm grateful for that. So isn't it true that biblical inequality, it, it, ex, it's, it exists, but it's much about much more than just income. It's talent, location, health. Why does such inequality exist in our society today? I think, again, we have to start with a scripture and say, and look at who we are in Christ. How did he create us? Um, and so if you look at that, you understand that we are unique. I, I think the word unequal there is, is not, doesn't give kind of the right idea about who we are in Christ. We're unique. We're distinct. We're made in the image of Christ, in fact, made in, made in the image of God, excuse me. So there's something that, that is unique in you and in every listener and in me, um, that is unlike any other person who has walked the earth. And that's exciting. And so while there may be a lot of people who have the type of job you do, who are in the profession that you do, you can do it only the way you can. And so what this means is that there's a particular way that we're going to use our skills, our talents, but also our propensity towards risk, our location, as you mentioned. All of these things come together uniquely um, for us to be equipped to serve Christ and do exactly what he's asked us to do. And that happens in the marketplace. It happens when we open businesses and teach students and uh, are, act as software engineers. All these things, if God has created us to do it, bring him glory. And so because of that, we're going to earn a lot of different incomes. But I think the key to focus on it, kind of in terms of the political debate that surrounds it is that the idea is that in a flourishing society – 
People at the lowest levels of income, here's the two things we care about. We care about what can they consume, what's it, what is it like to be poor, and we care about what does it take to not be poor. So those are the questions. And really, if you look at income inequality in the United States versus income inequality in Bangladesh, we're talking about two very different realities. Being poor in the United States is quite different than being poor in Bangladesh. And that doesn't mean we minimize the hard lives that people have. If you're born in an inner city in the United States and you have a broken family, you face hard trade-offs. But it's decidedly different than living in a developing world where you may not even have access to clean water. So what we're concerned about is how to improve the lot of everyone in a society. And that takes the focus away from income inequality to what I like to talk about, which is income mobility. How do we increase our incomes over time? Wow. There's just so much there that I want to unpack. So really, the way you started to describe that is we live in a very God-designed this it really, diversity of talents, of gifts, talents, and abilities, and, and the unique and distinctness of each one of us, God did that all on purpose. And that the result of different income levels is based on the fact that some people were given different sets of gifts, talents, and abilities, which enabled them to make different kinds of income. Is that what you're saying? I'm just trying to understand it, because diversity in, in the conservative world is, is such a negative word. But really, our Heavenly, Father, our Heavenly Father created the diversity that we live within. Absolutely. And I think different doesn't mean uh, that God doesn't love us. You know, different does, that's not what different means. Different means, I think the word unique is the right word. That there's something about each one of us that is special and unreplicated. And that means you have a job to do. So as you say, and you know, I work for him, we are on a mission. And our mission is unique to each one of us. And we are in a fallen, sinful world. So the mission gets really complicated. And sin distorts our preferences. And, you know, uh, I'm raising very young children in a, in a world where uh, what I see the culture saying is pick the job that gives you the most money. So to me, this is not how God created us. Some of us, he's going to say, you know, you're going to kind of be middle of the road in your income. And, and some people he's going to put in positions where they earn a lot of money. And in earning a lot of money, there is a lot of responsibility that you bear That's in for your sure. giving. Absolutely. And so um, the materialist idea is just pick the job that gives you the most money. And we're saying, nope, that's not even possible. God created you to do something. And that means there's a lot of things he didn't create you to do. Well, let's just stop there. i got to stop you there because in our society, we have gone from a society that that recognized the fact that people had a diverse and, as you said, really special and unreplicated, and as I always say, a a specially designed set of gifts, talents, and abilities that's unique to you. And we've gone from a society that says, yes, some people are going to be fantastic mechanics and some people are going to be great artists and some people are going to be great CEOs of multinational manufacturing corporations. But we say everybody should go to college today. But it's not true. It's just not true. And we're seeing the results of that now. So many kids go to college and they come out and they're like, well, I... I didn't learn anything I really wanted to do. I, I really like doing this, but it had nothing to do with what I learned in college. So they get in jobs that they're not equipped for. But our society is kind of pushed towards, instead of recognizing that trade schools, trade. I mean, we need people to do stuff that are trades. And there are people that are absolutely way better with their hands than they are better with a, with a computer. There's people that are way better with, with their minds in designing things than they are in managing people. But we, but we always say everybody's got to go to college. 
Absolutely. And I think it's because the culture has the wrong ideal. And so what we as Christians, you know, we have to share the gospel in our through our lives, first and foremost, which means saying, I have a child and God might not be calling him to go to college. God might not be calling him to have a six-figure income. And am I, as a parent who's raising this child to love Christ and serve Christ, Am I willing to accept that? And I think as Christians that's even hard for us because we want to compete with the culture. Um, But I think we have to stay focused on what we're really after. What we're after is how do I figure out what God wants me to do on this earth and then do it with absolute integrity? And, And when we do that, that's how our children are going to be fulfilled. That's how we're going to be fulfilled. It's not saying, hey, surgeons make the most money. I'm going to go do that. Well, if you're not, God didn't make you to to have the skills to do that, then you're kind of on a fool's errand. Um, And you're going to feel a lot of destructive, negative, um, depressing feelings as a result of it. So we can't run against who God created us to be. We have to run into that. But so many people, and that's what we need to encourage people today, to, to hear just this one point of so many great points that you made, is that God did create us special and unreplicated. I like that. I'm going I'm to use those terms just when I'm speaking all the time. But is that we stop trying to plug a round peg into a square hole. That, that yeah. God has designed us so differently, the same solution is not doesn't apply to everybody. And that, I don't know, I don't know, I better, you just said it, I don't need to repeat what you just said. But really what, what's incredible is that we just need to recognize that this diversity that God has made in each one of us, it was by design because there are different, lots of different pieces of society that need to be served. And think about it this way. This is where the economic insights come straight from Scripture, which is that if we were all the same, there would be no way we could serve each other. If we were all exactly, we looked exactly alike, we were made exactly alike, we had all the identical talents, identical entrepreneurial insights, all these things, they were exactly the same, there would be no trade. And so we would be highly limited. And I just, if I can go through this quick little thought experiment. Think about all the things you did today before you got into your car or sat in your your office. You woke up, you used an alarm clock, you took a shower, you brushed your teeth, you washed your hair, you ate some food, you got in a car, you did all these things and relied on all these products brought to you by millions of people you will never meet. And that liberated you. That liberated you because you didn't have to figure out how to make a ceramic coffee cup, and you didn't have to grow the beans, but you got to drink a beautiful, soul-enriching cup of coffee or tea. Um, You had food at your disposal that you didn't have to grow. You didn't have to raise cows in your backyard. Think about that. That only becomes – that's only true because we're diverse. If we were the same at everything, we'd have nothing, really. Or very little. No, I I agree. And so many, because our cultures have moved so far away from agriculture, most people don't understand how difficult it is to bring all these different things to market to get it here. They have no concept of what it's like to to haul a load of corn into the local feed mill for them to upload it into the silo to get it all dried out. They have no idea what it really takes. All right, and we have talked about the fact that really we live. I, I took in a little bit of a rabbit trail talking about the, the impact of the minimum wage on our economy getting raised to 15 bucks. We're going to have to do a whole show on that one. But then we really, you just said it so well that God designed the diversity, the specialness, the unreplicatedness in each one of us as human beings. And each one of us has a role within our culture, a role within our economic structure, a role within our society. And not all of those roles uh, are in 
involve going to get a college degree. Not all those roles involve being in an office. Some involve being in a field. And that God designed that on purpose. But really, we're talking about this biblical answer to poverty, this biblical answer to income inequality. And, and, and that's really what the, the arguments are out there in the news is like, we've got all these poor people. How do we get them not to be poor anymore? How do we help them to not be poor? But you're in the book, and I've read the book. It says there's always going to be poor amongst us. That's a biblical thing. How we care for the poor needs to be intentional. How, you, you just said we need to understand poverty. Help us understand poverty, and what are some things that we as Christ followers in the workplace can do to aid people who are uh, being uh, subjected to poverty? Absolutely. So there's uh, some big questions there that I think are important to tackle. I, I know you like to do that. It's good, though. Uh, so the first issue is just uh, what is poverty? And the book really does a lot of work to try to understand that. And so this big issue of spiritual poverty is different than material poverty, and so I think we have to talk about those. They are certainly related, but they are different. And so um, when we look at the poor always being with us, there are types of poverty that will always be with us. This is true. But the type of material poverty that most of you know, human history lived under, and I'm talking living under $100 a year, that existed for most of human history. I mean, really up until about 1750. Um, people were dying very young, very poor, fighting oppression, just trying to survive, survive, survive. There wasn't a lot of thriving. Um, that type of poverty um, is set to be eliminated. Um, and, you know, really, if you look at what economists are saying about abject poverty rates, this is living under $1.25 a day. In the 80s, 40% of the planet lived in abject poverty. Today, 12%. Uh, the president of the World Bank is saying by 2030, 3%. Uh, so most people are going to escape abject poverty. And then, you know, that, that doesn't mean there's not work to do because then you have to get above $2 a day and $10 a day and this type of thing. So I think we're on the right track in terms of material poverty and, and, and largely eliminating it. But then I think we have to address ourselves to this bigger issue of spiritual poverty and what it means to be a Christ follower in an age of lots of wealth and how sin distorts our desires and our preferences and our consumption. So just because we're rich doesn't mean, and I, and I mean rich globally, I mean most people don't think of themselves on par with Bill Gates, but really if you're kind of tuning into the radio in your car, you're globally rich. Um, and so in those terms, you know, how do we think about what Christ wants us to do when he's given us so much. And so we have big responsibilities. And you asked the question, how do we think about that in our jobs, in our communities, in our churches? I would say the number one thing you can do to serve humanity, um, including the poor, is do your job well. Because when you do your job well, you are serving other people. You are, you are doing things for them they can't do for themselves. It's why I hire an accountant. It's why somebody programs my computer for me. I can't do these things. I'm not good at them. And Again, allowing other people to serve me and paying them for that frees me up to do what I am good at. And when more people cannot have to do everything for themselves, they're liberated to live into who God has called them to be. So we get a lot more flourishing as a result of that. Now, that said, we still have to help the materially poor. Uh, but I think we have to ask two questions, and then I'll stop there. One is, 
what does this person need today to, to survive? So if somebody's hungry, you feed them. If somebody needs medical care, you attend to it right away. Don't ask questions. But then, and we all are, I feel that the church is good at that. What we're not maybe always as good at is saying, what does that person need in the long run? What's the five-year plan? How are we going to help them with educational skills or vocational skills so that they can eventually transition out of poverty? Because that's the goal. Well, and I think, Our help should be directed towards that transition. Well, I really think, you know, we, we, we as a society, as a United States society, we've been asking that question, hey, what do we need to do to help people just survive today? We've been asking that question for 60 years, this war on poverty. You know, we, we started this war on poverty. We're going to take poverty out. We never addressed question number two. We just have gone to providing for them, but we've never... I thought we were taking a step out of it when we had this uh, under President Clinton, the, the Welfare Reform Act, which tried to get people out of being just subject to giving, getting things given to them in order to get them out of being hungry every day to working, getting right. towards getting a job provided for themselves and moving away from this spiritual poverty that they get subjected to. But it seems like that got stymied. I mean, it, it, I mean, it's 49 million people are on uh, food stamps. I mean, the number has grown a- astronomically. So how, how should we be approaching that, that uh, how do we provide for those needs? But then really, how do we get people to recognize that that spiritual poverty sometimes really keeps people from, from seeing that there's an answer out there if they would just get out there and start seeking that answer? Yeah, that's a, it's a tough question. I would say the first and foremost model for us should always be Jesus. And what did he do? He cared for the poor. He had a heart for the poor. Um, he got to know the people that he was talking to, that he was visiting with. And the problem with some of our large federal programs, while I think many of them have good intentions, is that giving someone a food stamp, yes, it might give them food that they need desperately, and we need to do that. But it doesn't get into relationship with them. So how on earth are we supposed to know what that unique individual, who also is created in the image of God, by the way, what do they need to thrive who has God called them to be? We cannot help people in the long term if we don't know the answer to those questions. And so we have to get active in our communities and get to know people, not walk away, not drop $20 in a you know cup and walk on, but have a conversation, get to know, get in relationship and love them. And that's really I think where that's the answer. That, and really, that's I'm reading a book that uh, that we're I'm going to have the author on in a couple of weeks called Kingdom Come, and it's it's about what the church has lost its original mission. I mean, a lot of the churches are really struggling. What are we here for? You know, we've gotten very inwardly focused, and really, what you just described is exactly what the church needs to be doing. We all could use to be outwardly focused and develop relationships with people that aren't. They 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 could use some of what we have, whether it's wisdom, whether it's money, but you know, to help them from where they are to where they could be if they if somebody mm-hmm. just invested in them materially, but more relationship wise. I mean, it's really just people need to be told you are valuable. You have been created by God. You are gifted, as you have said so well, special and un maybe maybe you shouldn't use the word special, but that we have been created specially by God, and we are unreplicated. I mean, this is, you've got a design. God gave you a unique set of gifts, talents, and abilities for our society. Are they being used? And most of the time the answer is no. So this relationship, when you start to give that opportunity to have a relationship with somebody, that also gives you the opportunity to to talk about Christ that's in our lives. But have you seen 
the, the war on poverty succeed in any of these fashions? Have you seen a model that's really working here in our country? I would say largely, again, I don't want to criticize the intentions. Um, I agree. I think the intentions, you know, were good. Um, and I, I think that, that there are good people working in these agencies that want to help. Unfortunately, I think we're ignoring the economic realities of the situation, which is this. It's kind of like the minimum wage question that you that you asked earlier. The answer to kind of jump-starting progress, right, to kind of – to facilitate the sub-creator idea that we talked about earlier is not to just move resources around. That's kind of a maybe a necessary but not sufficient condition for uh, how we're going to uh, eliminate poverty and help the poor. Yes, if somebody's starving, we have to give them food today. But that is not the end of the story. And so, unfortunately, I think these a lot of these programs, rather than say, hey, let's, let's develop a plan to get you, if possible, off these uh, in, uh, programs, because and there are some people that need assistance their whole lives. They can't care for themselves, and we have a responsibility to care for them. But I'm talking about people who could be equipped to hold jobs. It is our duty to help them. You know why? They are individual little centers of human dignity, mm-hmm. and we need to look at people and view them that way. And you know, just giving people stuff and walking away and not dealing with the heart. And the transformation in the mind and the transformation in the spiritual transformation, then we're never going to cultivate and help them live into that dignity that they were created with. And so when you think about it that way, it's very powerful what we're asked to, to do, and it's hard. It's hard. It's not easy. If the minimum wage was the solution, if food stamps were the solution, we'd have no more poverty. They're just not the solution. They're part, perhaps, of what we need to do. We need to feed people. We need to clothe them. But they're not the long-run answer, and that requires relationships. I love that. I love that. Today we're talking with Dr. Ann Bradley. She's from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. You can find them online at tifwe.org. We're talking about the biblical perspective on inequality and how God designed us all so individually with in a special way that's unreplicated, and because of that, we all have different responsibilities and roles within a culture and within jobs, but yet poverty is a result where some people just haven't gotten access to the necessary training in order to pull themselves up out of poverty. So we've got a, about a minute and a half before we go to break, and what's one thing a Christian business owner or maybe an just an employee can do to help pull somebody out of poverty? I think the first thing we can do is look locally. Where do you work? Where's your church? Where's your neighborhood? Help identify what the needs are of people. Maybe they've lost their homes. Maybe they've lost their jobs. Maybe the recession has hit your community particularly hard. Look to where people are hurting and then get to know them first. And then let's figure out a plan. Um, to help them. And we might not be able ourselves to do everything, but I think coming together with business um, leaders and business owners and church leaders, I think we can really make a difference in our own communities Hmm. and see the results, which is exciting. I I love that. And really, it just, we're going to change this battle. And instead of just fighting poverty with programs, we're going to fight it with relationship. I like that. You're changing the tools. And I love that. And that's really what what has happened is when the government said, hey, we're going to take on this war on poverty, the church said, okay, well, they're going to do it, so we don't need to do it. And so we've stepped back from relationship, which is what the church is really good at, relationship. We're talking today with Dr. Ann Bradley from the Institute of Faith, Work, and Economics. Really, we've talked about minimum wage and the impact of that on our society. 
talked about the diversity that God created on purpose in our society, and we've been talking about the biblical solution for poverty, and we came down to one word. Dr. Ann Bradley, you said, really, we got to stop trying to solve this with programs. They're not the only solution. Really, we need to solve this with relationships. You get the last word. You got 50 seconds. I would say that the first thing we know we can rely on is the gospel, and that's the only thing that can transform lives, both materially and spiritually. So that's what we have to lead with in all of our good intentions. We have to seek Christ first. We have to look to the scripture as our guide for all of faith and practice. And then we just, I think, have to incorporate really good economic thinking. And I, with that, we can do so much good. Um, And I just want to end with realize that we are special, that you are uniquely made. God has big things he's asked you to do. Um, and in a way that only you can do them. Uh, I want to thank you, Anne, for joining us today. It's been so fun. Every conversation goes fa- as fast moving with you. We got to come back again. There's so much more we're talking. We need to talk about. But I love the fact that you drew out for us today that really a solution for uh, for and against poverty is just to start developing relationships with those and start feeding into people not only with with not just a program, but also that relationship. So thank you very, very much. You're listening to the I Work for Him Joe with your host Jim Brangenberg. I'm a Christ follower who owns my own business, but ultimately, I work for him.